0: If a church or group of Christians hurt you, that is part of your origin story. True heroes on their journey to victory often face many temptations to the dark side, and one of those temptations is a fantastical foe that we are calling deconstructionism. Yes, every Christian sometimes doubts, but how can we be kind to ourselves and other victims while refusing to let professional demolition crews reduce the gospel to ruin? Michael Young, also known as Vocal Distance, shares his knowledge about fantastical foe number one, deconstructionism. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth. This is the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world. And we're getting really real world today. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent.
1: And I'm Zachary Russell and today I'm asking myself some really easy questions like what is my identity and what is the meaning of life and where can I find the answers to this question because this episode number 153 about when can deconstructionism threaten Christian fiction and local distance whose uh, real name is Michael Young will be joining us to talk about all these very easy to answer questions with all kinds of great input. Stephen, I'm, I'm excited for this. I've, I've known our guest today for a few years now, and I've mostly talked on Twitter, so it's going to be fun to talk in person.
0: I have seen uh, Michael's uh, vocals, epic uh, Twitter threads. Uh, they often discuss issues that some of our listeners may not be familiar with, uh, but we're going to mine his sizable brain today about uh, what postmodernism is, how this leads to deconstruction, and what in the world this has to do with Christian fans, that is our audience, Christian readers, uh, watchers, uh, people who love fantastical stories, uh, including those by Christian authors, and we do group this uh, folk deconstructionism as a unique threat to these kinds of stories. In our last episode, 152, Required Listening, by the way, uh, we had a Lorehaven roundtable with several of our writers uh, about church hurt, about church trauma. Uh, These tragic backstories, real ones that you get uh, from a church back home or another Christian group or family members, uh, these things can wound us for sure. Uh, But as a result of these wounds, we often are tempted towards bad methods of healing. And one of those bad methods includes this foe today. People will come along, sometimes Christians, sometimes non-Christians, and they will say, you know what you need to do? You need to deconstruct. You can still be a Christian. But uh, you just need to clear away all the clutter from the church back home, uh, including maybe some unbiblical ideas, but often including some biblical ideas, too. They're appealing to your imagination, and some of these ideas are getting into stories. So that's what we'll be talking about as soon as Michael gets here. First off, though, let's have a non-deconstructive story. Our first sponsor from title sponsor Enclave Publishing Their new novel is out today, release day of this podcast, Tuesday, March 14th, and it is Enhanced by debut novelist Candace Cade. In this highly anticipated YA sci-fi set in the Asian Federation, Lee Urban is living a lie. In a society where everyone's DNA determines their destiny, being a natural means automatic relegation to the gritty and dangerous outskirts. With the harnessed power of gene editing, The ability to create a superhuman race has transformed the world and offered the opportunity of a genetically enhanced life, but only to those who can afford it. Targeted by a hacker bent on exposing her true DNA, Lee Urban faces off with an artificial intelligence game that puts her and her lies to the test. What was supposed to be a dream come true turns into a lethal gamble of hide-and-seek with her genetics. Can Urban continue the act? Or will the cracks in her story expose her and endanger her family? Enhanced by Candace Cade releases March 14th from Enclave Publishing. The audiobook is available from Oasis Audio. Get more information at EnclavePublishing.com or you can go to Lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors for all the purchase links and the cover or get the simple link in our show notes for episode 153. Zach, what a great segue that is. You have a character in this uh, social credit-ruled east asian uh, future sci-fi world who's struggling with her identity is having to get along with the lie that she's been genetically enhanced when it seems she has not uh, really looking forward to reading that book and by the way stay tuned to the end of the show and learn how you too if you're in central texas can meet candace cade at the upcoming uh, enclave lore haven fayette press uh, team up going on at a homeschool conference locally now I think I hear the weird sounds of a guitar-shaped spaceship from the album cover of the Petra album, Back to the Street, released in 1986, which only means that Michael Vocal Distance Young is on the way. Let us welcome him now. Michael Young, known on Twitter as "Vocal Distance, teaches about the roots of wokeness. He decodes, deciphers, and explains the postmodern world in a way which is accessible to the average person. For those who feel the breaking apart of the social world, he helps them find their bearings. You can follow him on Twitter at Wocal underscore Distance. And right now, you can find him in our studios. Michael, thanks for making it. Pleasure to be with you. Glad to see you, man. I hope I didn't take up too many spots with my oddly shaped guitar spaceship. <laughs> we just need to get a special permit for that. Uh, either that or if you go for postmodernism, you don't need a permit. Hey, man, uh, whatever floats your boat, man, it feels right to you, man. <laughs> At least that's a popular version of it. Uh, you're familiar with both a popular version of that uh, as well as uh, the complex version uh, you are showing us earlier. You're a sizable library of all these books about this thing that sounds like a, a college course, postmodernism. You know, it's a very uh, complicated thing. Uh, lots of thirteen uh, syllable, you know, hundred dollar words. Uh, we're going to simplify the language a bit, but hey, folks, we may get a little, uh, little deep in this discussion. By the way, Michael, uh, sit sit there for just a moment. Uh, we need to pull the lids off of this uh, little snack stand over here. We call this the concession stand. This is a part of the show where we go over our concessions. What are we here for? What are we talking about? What should the uh, what should the listeners expect to hear? And uh what should listeners forgive us for if we don't get to your favorite part of the topic? Uh, Zach, you you brought in some snacks here. You want to start us off?:
1: Yeah, you know, th- this is a going to be a very high level episode talking about lots of ideas and how those ideas are influencing us through stories uh, that we may be conscious of or unconscious of, And this is an attempt to help us be more aware of what's going on so that we can enjoy and even create better stories that are based on better and more solid ideas. Because our focus here is on the intersection of ideas and fiction, and particularly theology and fiction. So, you know, more than just pointing out bad ideas in culture, bad ideas in stories, we want to highlight excellent storytelling that glorifies God, particularly when it comes from fellow believers. But, you know, uh, a lot of people as act 17 says stumble and and find their way and and search for god and so we we can see a lot of glimmers of that in pop culture so we'll we'll talk about some good and bad <laughs> examples of these kinds of things in popular movies we are talking about some hot topics but we we try to stay away from you know just political banter and and hot takes on politicians and that sort of thing but the reason we are talking about deconstruction is because that is a trend that does not seem to be slowing down, and it does seem to be a, a genuine threat to believers. Now, there's been some talk about this, like, is the church actually under threat? Are are there actual threats to the church? Because Jesus said the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. Well, all that's true, but Christians are vulnerable, and and local churches are born and die all the time. And so why why does this happen? we think this whole process of deconstruction is something that is a genuine threat to people's faith and to fellowship. So that's why we're going there.
0: And the reason why this applies uh, particularly to Christian fans uh, goes back to some reasons we outlined in our last episode. Again, 152 is the start of this series of fantastical foes. Absolutely required listening uh, before you go into this episode. If for no other reason than that episode is like a a full concession stand uh, because we're aware that a lot of the reasons why christians including christian uh, story fans are falling for some of these threats to our stories and even more importantly to our faith the reason why they're falling for these is because often because of church trauma or a genuine tragic backstory Uh, There's so much family breakup, and there are dysfunctional relationships, and of course many Christians fail to understand biblical principles of repentance and reconciliation. Uh, There's way too many churches, as well as other institutions, that will just try to sweep problems under the rug uh, because they're pretending that they're trying to present a good face to the world, and as a result, lots of people still carry a lot of hurt, uh, a lot of uh, understandable bitterness, and then along comes a... (laughs) a physician seemingly on the street and saying you know what Uh, you need to tear that foundation needed to tear it out and my friends and i we have a truck and we have some construction equipment actually destruction equipment we'll just bring in a wrecking ball uh, and take a good solid whack uh, at that church of your imagination and michael uh, i mentioned earlier you are not uh, like a christian fantasy author or anything like that but uh, we wanted to have you here because you come from a a field of study uh, that is outside the fiction realm. You may read fiction, uh, watch fiction, uh, but fiction readers do need to know that there are some nonfiction sources from these ideas. There are folks out there who intentionally want to destroy the Christian faith uh, from the inside. Uh, And as you've mentioned too, one of the quickest ways to do that is by appealing to the imagination. And Christian fans, uh, as uh, we mentioned in our last episode, Uh, Some have uh, different ways of thinking. Uh, Some were actually bullied in church, uh, in part related to uh, the stories that they enjoy. Uh, There's a lot of uh, bullied victims out there who are vulnerable uh, to these ideas, and so they have sensitive hearts. And if someone comes along and makes them feel welcome, uh, maybe says, I can explain what you're feeling about your past by talking about the history of the church and how bad those earlier evangelical leaders were how much they just wanted power uh well then you are po- probably on the road towards what we're calling deconstructionism michael do you have any concessions like what you're here to do what you're not here to do like something readers uh, or listeners may want to know before we head into chapter one of our talk yeah i'd like to read something okay what do you got
2: i think a lot of the ideas that fall loosely under the banners of deconstruction social justice Wokeness—you'll hear these terms tossed around a lot. Of that, if not all of it, originates in the academy and originates in university. We'll get into a little bit of that later, more of the history. But before we even start out, I want to read something from a book called *Pentecostal Theology in the Christian Spiritual Tradition* by Simon Chan. I'm—I go
0: to a Pentecostal church. I am a Pentecostal
2: cessationists you can clean up the damage later
0: (laughs) just don't bring any of that strange fire in here michael it's just too strange (laughs) even for a speculative uh podcast i will try not to bring in any fire that is
2: strange (laughs) so i want to read something that he wrote here he's talking about traditioning and he says as long as the role of the theologian is not recognized by his or her own church the theologian will not be able to help the church in its traditioning building its tradition keeping the tradition going, keeping the tradition on track. And then he says that a lot of times he talks about how theologians don't really get the opportunity or they're not given a place or they're not consulted, but he says this. The fault, however, does not always lie with the establishment. The theologian must bear part of the blame. And here's the key. Sometimes theologians are guilty of acting out of a sense of superior knowledge. This will only confirm in the ordinary church members and an insecure denominational leadership that the theologians are puffed up. We often hear complaints like, if that's what theological education does to one, then all the more reason why we should have nothing to do with it. The emerging Pentecostal community of scholars must find ways to relate meaningfully with their respective ecclesiastical bodies. Mm. There's a need to develop trust. For this, both theologians and church leaders must return to Paul's teaching in Romans 14 and 15 on the need for mutual respect between the strong and the weak. We who are strong in theological knowledge, ought to put up with the failings and the weak and not to please ourselves. Perhaps theologians must first learn to behave properly in deference to the conscience of the weak. I think that a lot of times, particularly academics, try to win the conversation or, or take a place of prominence in the conversation by dragging regular people out into the deep waters of technical disputes, of theological debate, of academic conversation. If you if you picture the academic world as a city, they don't just take people to the landmarks. They kind of drag them through all the byways and passageways and back alleys and side streets and demand, do you know where this is? Do you know where this is? Can you find this address? Oh, I guess you don't really know what you're talking about. And they kind of flood people with the fact that they don't know obscure technicalities or might not know what some obscure th- theologians, you know, from the university of wherever it was and whatever it was said in this obscure academic journal. And if you don't know that, you really don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And the average person starts kind of swimming and feels inadequate to the task. The academic can then take a place of prominence. You can't challenge me. I saw a dispute between a believer and an unbeliever where the unbeliever had said that they didn't believe in God and, and cited a portion of scripture and said, this just doesn't make sense to me and I, I don't think this is true. And the person responded by saying, Well, did you read what Thomas Aquinas wrote about this exact problem in the Summa Contra
0: Gentiles? <laughs> and, oh, of course, just the other day in the bathroom. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: And the and the unbeliever said, Well no, I said, Well, have you read Matthew Henry's commentary on the subject?
0: <laughs> I'm a Christian and I haven't either. <laughs>
2: and the person says well i don't know i'm not sure well you're not even really equipped to talk about this you really shouldn't be saying Uh. things and it's kind of like no no that's not how we deal with people we don't try to drown them in the fact we don't try to abscond with all the epistemic and moral authority of the conversation by drowning the person or by dragging the person out into the deep waters of theological philosophical and academic dispute in order to to make the person feel inadequate to the task, we don't try to flood them with jargon and terminology. That is not what we are here to do,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? That's a really great point. I want to get that out on the table and and say f- that just because you're not familiar with all the nuances, subtleties, and contours of current academic debate doesn't mean that you are therefore Devoid of standing in the conversation.
1: Amen. Yeah. I listened to uh, Eric Weinstein recently on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he talked about that there's this often this dynamic between academics where they're almost like sumo wrestlers trying to push each other outside the circle. And I, I think this is a unique dynamic in the, like you said, in the academy, you know, even in a seminary where it's like a battle of discrediting rather than it is a quest for education and that's and right assisting people. And that's why we brought you here today because chapter one of our discussion is what is postmodernism? What is deconstructionism? Why do they matter? And hey, didn't all of this disappear back in twenty fourteen? That's what I heard. Oh,
2: okay. <laughs> so let's let's have a little bit of a conversation about that. Maybe we could talk about a bit of an origin story. Yeah. So when I was in, in Bible school is where I first heard about postmodernism. And it was through this book right here, which I am holding my hands, but your listeners can't see, called A Primer on Postmodernism by Stanley J. Grenz. And what Grenz argues in this book is basically that in the same way that we went from like the Stone Age to maybe the Middle Ages, or from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, or from the Renaissance to the Industrial Age, or the modern age, we're going through another epochal shift. A shift from the modern age to the postmodern age. Now, for reasons that we'll get into in a little bit, when you say the word postmodern, there's
1: a lot of kerfuffle about what
2: exactly that
1: means. Seems by design,
2: too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's tough. Um, and that's part of because, part of that is because of the way postmodernism understands meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, what does meaning really mean? You know, they, And so when you try mm-hmm. to pin them down on what is postmodernism, What does postmodernism mean? The the postmodernist will immediately begin having a conversation about meaning, so it's kind (laughs) of tough. But in the broadest sense, postmodernism is the conceptual, cultural, academic, theoretical milieu that shows up after modernism. It is, as Gren says, the age in which postmodern ideas step to the forefront of society and culture and exercise the most influence in life. You could think of it that way. It's kind of, it is as though the modernist ideas, the enlightenment liberal ideas, you might call them, have stepped back from, from public life in a certain way. Have, those waters have receded back a little bit, and the postmodern ideas are now having their moment in the sun. You could think of it that way. So what does that look like? So I'd like to start off with a little bit of an analogy so that people can kind of understand what I'm trying to point at first. So I'm just going to point out at a few things that are big, major landmarks. And once people are oriented in the city of postmodernism, they'll be able to look around and start to figure out what's going on and figure out where in the city of postmodernism they stand. There's an old George Carlin bit that he does, where he discusses things that make us all the same. And he's talking about this and he says, have you ever tried to pick up a suitcase that you thought was full and it was empty? And you almost, and you go yoink and you lift it way up and you almost mm-hmm. throw it. And what do you got to do? You got to, whoa, you got to catch your balance, right? Or have you ever been walking down the steps and you think there's one more step and there isn't, and you kind of stumble trip. and yeah. it's is that kind yeah, of feeling. Kinda, yes. And you got to reach and touch the wall, right? You're, you're orienting yourself. He asks, have you ever seen two trains, one in front of the other? And one of the trains starts moving. And for a split second, you're not sure which one it is. Again, you lose your orientation. Mm-hmm. This happens to all of us. I'd like to, to do something with that, but I'd like to take his train analogy, turn it into a car analogy, and then then maybe we can help us understand postmodernism with that. Have you ever been in a car and you're stopped at a red light and a car to your left or your right starts moving and for a split second, you're not sure whether it's you or the car beside you
0: that's moving? I can literally think of that feeling now. Yes.
2: Yeah. And so what do you do? You tap the brake, right? If that car's still moving and you've hit the brake and you're not sure whether you're moving, well, what do you do? You look around at a mountain or a hill or a tree or a building or a stop sign or a light post or whatever it is around that you know isn't moving. So you could orient yourself and catch your bearings, right? You want to be able to look around and say, aha, well, that, that skyscraper, I know that's not moving. So I'm not moving, so that means the car beside me is the one that's moving. And then you can make sense of everything, right? And that feeling of, am I moving or not, goes away. So picture this. You're sitting at the red light, car beside you starts moving, and you hit the brake, and you're still not sure if he's moving or not. So you, you look around at a building or a tree or a mountain, and the building's moving,
1: mm.
2: and the tree's moving, and the mountain's moving, and all the stop signs are moving. The roads are moving. Everything is moving. That's postmodernism. Hmm. Nothing is stable. Nothing is still. There are no immovable pillars. Everything in postmodernism is moving. All of the standards, all of the rules, all of the concepts, all of the definitions of the terms in play, everything is being constantly readjusted, changed, altered, and otherwise moved, quote unquote, around.
0: There are no solid foundations. Michael, I think that's why these ideas resonate accidentally with so many people, because you're talking about a sense of instability where nothing has a foundation. We've been talking about, or even setting up the show earlier, about this idea that for the Christian uniquely, and the Christian fan too, the deconstructionists will take a wrecking ball to the foundation of your faith. Uh, and the deconstructionists would say, "Well, that's because it wasn't even really there. It's shifting sand, not a solid rock. You may as well tear it out. Uh, there is no foundation, or maybe there's some better foundation that they believe uh, the activist uh, has put together." But I think that this, these ideas, even for people who've never been in the academy, who've never opened one of these books, who maybe never even heard of the word postmodernism, or understand the three types of modernist eras that we've gone through, these work with people's Feelings. If someone feels unstable uh, because of a bad, terrible, ongoing church experience, or a family dysfunction, or uh, some other kind of family breakup, or even something as simple as uh, poverty, you know, we could even talk about uh, racial tension or some of those other things that people uh, have to go through. Uh, It just makes sense, I think, and I have seen this in human beings. I'm sure we all have. It makes sense to throw up your hands and you go, "Well, I guess nothing is locked down. Everything is in flux. Everything is in motion." Uh I don't have a fixed reference point, and that's okay. that's okay. It is what it is. I hear so many people just say it is what it is. No, it's not. What you're saying by that is that uh everything is just just whatever, man, uh, and you can put the surfer dude voice on it and make fun of it, or you can take it seriously and be earnest in response and say no, that's really tragic. And then secondly, as a believer in Christ, we say no. Christ is forever. Christ is fixed. He is not only the foundation, he is the cornerstone of the foundation. And if you reject the cornerstone, as Christ warns uh, that nonbelievers will reject him, uh, you indeed are trying to build on shifting sand. And I think Mm -hmm. the wisest Christian writers uh, comparing these things to biblical imagery will compare it to the parable where Christ talks about the wise man who built his house upon the immovable solid Foundational rock uh, and the foolish man build his house on the sand. I would add to that though, if I would dare add to one of Christ's parables, sometimes the wounded man built his house on the sand, uh, or the man who feels that he ought to be a hero to other wounded people builds his house upon the sand. Or Christian fans, sometimes, I'm not going to name names, but sometimes we'll talk about this in chapter two. Sometimes even some Christian fiction authors can build their house, maybe part on the rock, uh, but maybe it's part on the sand. You know, maybe they, added, uh, maybe they added a nice sun porch uh, that's actually built on uh, a foundation of shifting sand. And it's not right. It's not helpful to the reader. Uh, it may be really sunshiny out there. It may feel really nice in the summer, uh, but you have not loved that reader at all, uh, Christian author. Uh, you have not built that foundation. Uh, uh, on, you have not built that sun, uh, sun porch on the foundation of the gospel. You mentioned, Michael, postmodernism and modernism. I'm trying to remember, this is an orbital view of these isms throughout history. There is pre-modernism, which is basically the medieval or late medieval period where you had more of a supernatural worldview. Again, we're, we're talking more about Western society here, so that's kind of a concession. Uh, this is Western philosophical stuff, y'all. Just You mentioned the milieu, uh, Michael. That is just the The atmosphere, the aesthetic, uh, the sensibility that informed art and philosophy and religious teaching and your day to day life—yeah, not just where you go on Sundays. This is the milieu. It's pre-modernism. A lot of it uh, Catholic informed. So we're we're all Protestants here, uh, but uh, you know, Catholics did some good stuff. And what they did do right was understanding that all the world is, in some sense, affected by the supernatural, meaning God, uh, meaning the arrival and resurrection, uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ, meaning. Uh, the gospel or some kind of reflection of the gospel that's what people are now calling pre-modernism modernism Modernism now is kind of this uh this relatively distinct period you mentioned michael the enlightenment uh, where people got kind of tired of pre-modernism they weren't calling it then uh that then philosophers uh, some atheism or agnosticism uh, as well as some uh, some more religious philosophers and thinkers they say, well, you know, we're kind of past that now. Um, we're kind of going to move towards maybe some more evolution based thinking. Uh, we found this thing called science, and science can explain a whole lot. Uh, wow, look what we can do with science. We can build uh, steamships and things. You know, we can make all kinds of machines more with, uh, with this modern ideas than we could with pre modern ideas, because those were the dark ages. So you get all that. Mm-hmm. And then, right about the time, um, really kind of before the smartphone, really. Um, I would say, roughly corresponding with the, uh, the internet, really you see postmodernism take off. This overload of information, uh, I would say, the family breakup and some personal reasons, people really start resonating with this idea, originally from the academy, uh, that there is no foundation. You can read a book, uh, and maybe you can go with what you believe the author meant, but maybe that story means something else to you. You have the slow death of the author, uh, maybe the poisoning of the author or the sidelining of the author, but sometimes the overt death of the author, JK Rowling's dead, Harry Potter lives, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And you have some other issues even just with how people read books. Uh, It's all about the reader and how he or she feels today uh, rather than what the author meant. Uh, In other words, Michael, what you said, nothing is fixed, everything is in motion I almost sound like Yoda here. Uh, It's uh, the force. Uh, There's neither real good or evil there. Uh, It's just the force.
2: There's a lot of balls you put on a lot of tees.
0: I'm trying to pick a club here. (laughs) As I said, orbital view, orbital view. I
1: I can tee you up here. So I, I think how this all relates to what we're talking about is that because we feel that we live in a world without foundations, we feel the freedom to take a wrecking ball to anything and that's kind of where deconstruction comes in, because we, we even look at the church and we say, oh, this all is fake and it's not real. It's kayfabe.
0: Or it's worse because people will abuse you or abandon you uh, when they said they wouldn't.
1: Exactly. So we, we have the freedom to just take apart whatever we want to take apart. That to me seems to be the danger that we're facing, mm-hmm. because I think there is this desire for something real. And that, that desire is good but the means by which it's being accomplished is the problem. That's my take.
2: Okay. So I'm going to use a couple of analogies. So in order to really get this, we have to kind of understand where these ideas came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's two things that are going on here. One is that there's a set of ideas that's going on. And the second, there's a set of, there's a use to which those ideas are being put. That's baked into the whole thing. This is something from, Mark Leela in the New York Review of Books. So I'm just going to read something that I think will help. He's talking about Derrida's, Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher closely associated with postmodernism. And he says this In the United States, however, his ideas, that is Derrida's ideas, which were first introduced into literary criticism, now circulate in the alien environment of academic postmodernism which is loosely, a loosely structured constellation of ephemeral disciplines like cultural studies, feminist studies, gay and lesbian studies, science studies, and post-colonial theory. Academic post post-modernism is nothing if not syncretic, which makes it difficult to understand or even describe it. It borrows freely from the translated works of Derda, Michael Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Jean Baudrillard, Julia Kristeva, and if that were not enough, also seeks inspiration from Walter Benjamin, Theodore Odono, and other figures from the German Frankfurt School. Given the impossibility of imposing any logical order on ideas as dissimilar as these, postmodernism is long on attitude and short on argument. What appears to hold it together is the conviction that promoting these very different thinkers somehow contributes to a shared emancipatory political end, which remains conveniently ill-defined. He wrote that back, I believe, in 1998. Wow. Oh, that was a whole world ago. Mm-hmm. So here is what is kind of going on. In the 60s and 70s, as Enlightenment liberalism was really had really reached its zenith at the end of World War II with the triumph of the United States, which was the predominant Enlightenment liberal power of the time, along with Britain, its ally, had really triumphed and After World War II, even though the USSR did oppose the Nazis, they never hit the cultural power or the economic power of the United States. And so, what's happening there is the so called New Left at that time, you could think of them as the people that came out of the hippie generation. If you think back to 1968, all of the unrest that was going on, and they were really looking for a way to oppose the American. Liberal, small L liberal, classical liberal, capitalist, you know, Protestant work ethic, culture. The immediate thing that they might have looked to, which would have been kind of left wing socialism or communism, had in the Soviet Union at least been utterly discredited. Same within Cuba. Um, you have the Viet Cong and v- um, Vietnam, you have the Khmer Rouge and Cambodia. You're just seeing slaughter and death in all of these places you have all sorts of gulags set up you have the rise the cultural revolution in china the death toll of communism is put somewhere i mean estimates are hard to get because communists tend to destroy these records yeah Yeah. that yeah on between 60 and 100 million most credible estimates like the lower end estimates is like 20 or 30 million
1: yeah it's unbelievable
2: and so the left at that time has kind of got egg on their face so they're looking for a way out and so there's kind of a despondency and nihilism. And in that environment, something new begins to emerge. So there's a couple of things that go on. First, um, there is the, the sort of neo Marxist school of the German Frankfurt School. You could think of it that way. That's Adorno. That's Horkheimer. That's Marcuse. Well, they would call themselves radicals, I think. That would be acceptable to them on their own terms. They're taking Karl Marx's philosophy which was basically materialist and based on economics in a broad sense. I know he wrote more than that. And they're moving it onto cultural terrain and talking about the society. Okay? As that movement's going on, something new shows up in philosophy departments in France at the Collage de France, and it shows up with three thinkers, Derda, Foucault, and Baudrillard. And those three thinkers really pour in the ideas that are going to be used to get what we're seeing now off the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. they're kind of the godfathers of deconstructionism right
2: yes yep so in order to understand how this works i'm going to use a couple of analogies to try and get this across because it's really difficult like i'm sitting here i'm struggling how do you explain all this <laughs> stuff quickly but let's use a couple of analogies so what derda does is Derrida starts out with language and Derrida's basic point is that there is no objective reference for language mm. See, we tend to have this idea that I look, go out and I look at an object, say a tree. I get in my head the concept of a tree, then I go to you and I say the word tree, and the word concept is attached to the word tree. And then you hear the word tree, and you know what concept is attached to that word, and so you understand what I mean. That's a a really basic idea of language. Derrida's going to come along and say, uh-uh-uh, that's wrong. Derrida's going to come along and he say, we're going to look at this business of writing, and reading. And once we, we, we tug on that thread, the entire philosophy of Western civilization is going to be unwound. And so what he's going to do is he's going to do something like this, and we're going to speed run Derrida, man. He's going to say, look, we usually privilege speech over writing. We say that the writing or the written word is the graphic form of the spoken word. It's derivative in some sense. The real word is the spoken word that I'm saying to you writing is a, is a derivative. It's one step back from that. The written word refers to the spoken word and the spoken word is the thing that's actually attached to the concept. The written word is just kind of pointing that it's derivative. So when you have a spoken word, you have the person right there and the meaning is in their head and they're speaking the words. Whereas written the written word it's kind of like, well, the person's not in the room. I might be reading what they're saying a hundred years after they're gone and I have to do some interpret work to, interpretive work to try and figure out what they mean. So Derrida says, look, everyone thinks that writing is kind of like a couple steps back. But he goes, actually, no. He doesn't think that. He says, look, when you're reading a written word, what do you, you know? You have a word that's written, and you don't know what it means. What do you do? Well, you go to the dictionary. And what does the dictionary have? More, More words. words. Yeah. So when you read, the, so you don't know what those words mean. So you look them
1: up. What do you find? More words. So there's no foundation is kind of his point.
2: Well, yeah, he's going to say this. Look, all the words are defined by other words. And you sit there and you kind of go, huh? And he says, look, you guys all think that there's some concept floating around out there, some meaning, some substance, some form, some ghostly entity that's in people's head. And he goes, look, no, words words, words are defined by other words. And those words are defined by other words. And those words are defined by other words. And he says, the words are, the meaning is always deferred because in each word is defined by other words. And so you always have to, you can keep tracing the meaning back endlessly, right? There's an endless chain of signification, an endless chain of reference, an endless chain of meaning as we trace these words back, as we pull on this thread. So Derrida says, look, when you say a word, you speak a word out, I say tree, and you ask me what I mean. Well, what am I going to do? I could point at a tree, but does that, when I point at a tree, that specific tree? Well, no, things that are like that. Which things that are like that? How closely do they have to resemble the things that I just pointed at, right? What about a bush? What about grass? What about a flower? And again, we're right back in that same thing where the words are defined by other words. We also find that the tree is defined by what it is and what it is not, right? Right. So, the tree is defined by because it's not a bush and it's not a flower and it's not, and the word tree is not free, it's not B, it's not C, right? So, the word is defined by other words, both in terms of the words that are used in its dictionary definition, but also in its place in the system of words. So, all of a sudden, what do you end up with? Well, If everything is just defined by everything else, what's the objective point of reference? Right, right. There is no central object in the system of words with which that you can set your peg down, that you can pin it on. It's all just defined by other words. And using our example of a tree, what's a tree defined by? A tree is not a bush. It's not a rose. It's not grass. It's not moss. It's defined by its what? Role in the system of things. And Derrida says, look, you guys all thought speech was like the primary thing, but he goes, actually, no, it's reading. And how do you read? You look at a word and you find its place in the system of words. And that's a, it's context and interpretation, says Derrida. And he says, isn't that what you're doing when you look out in the world at a tree? It's all context and interpretation. And Derrida says, everything is like that.
0: Mm, everything that's where it hits the road yes
2: you might say to oversimplify as jeffrey beddington said in the la review of books that on Derrida's view thinking proceeds by reading you're always reading the world the way the quarterback reads a defense the way a climber might be trying to get a read on that mountain the way you might go in and try to read a room it's context and interpretation okay now, I, I know it's, it's difficult, but let's put some skin on this a little bit. Suppose I have a Lego model of a baseball stadium. Suppose you're from another culture. You've never seen a baseball stadium before. What am I going to do? Well, you see the baseball, the Lego baseball stadium. I go say, well, here, this Lego thing is a miniature version of that big thing over there. Well, what's the big thing over there? Well, if you want to know what a baseball stadium is, you have to know what baseball is. Okay. Well, in order to know what baseball is, you have to know what the rules are. Well, in order to know what the rules are, you have to know what the rule book is. Well, in order to know what the rule book is, you have to know what the language is. Well, in order to know what the language is, you have to know what English is. (laughs) Right? You can just endlessly keep going. Right. It's all built on itself in this view. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Everything is just these endless chains of signification that can go on forever. And that meaning is just a product of the system. There are no floating around concepts. There is no objective frame of reference. There's no God's eye point of view. Mm, uh -uh. Everyone is just in the system. Everyone is just looking around and everyone is just interpreting based on whatever context they have. Now, Derek is going to say, well, I'm not denying objectivity. I admit there's a world. Yeah, he does. And he actually says in his uh, 2004 book, um, Paper Machine, he denies that there's any relativism. He thinks he can escape it because he's going to say, well, if cultural relativism, you're elevating the culture and making everything relative to the culture. In linguistic relativism, you're elev- elevating the language and making everything relative to the language. Derda is saying, nothing is elevated. It's all in the system of difference, everything is relative to everything else, therefore nothing is relative, because it's all in the system. It's all a, The system of differences is every object, every word. they're all just relating to each other, and you work it out by context and interpretation. All right. There's no objective frame of reference. There's no core. There is no center. no foundation. Right. It's like the surface of a sphere. There is no center of the surface of a sphere. There's no middle of the surface of a basketball. Mm-hmm. The middle of the basketball is it's the core. And Dare is saying there's no core. It's all just the sphere. And you can go endlessly in any direction that you want at all times. And if you keep going around, you end up back where you started. That doesn't mean the sphere doesn't exist. It's still there. And Dare is saying, where are you on the sphere? That's a matter of context and interpretation. There is no objective point of reference to No pillar to put down, no flag to put down, no objective point of view that you can step back. There is no God's eye point of view from which to get a
0: a view of the world which is objectively right and neutral. So these and other philosophers are making a great unbiblical assumption here, and we'll, we'll need to move to chapter two here in a moment, but... What I'm hearing is, of course, you know the the words of one thinker thinking endlessly about words. Uh, apparently, this chap has a lot of spare time to think about these things. And sometimes I wonder, <laughs> you know, what uh, if these people had kids, if they had families? I wonder if maybe this would stop them from uh, navel gazing uh, for so long. Uh, what about words, man? Like, where do they really come from, man? Like all the words just reference other words, man. And it's all based on context. And another interpretation you get now, Michael, uh, kind of descended from these original academic thinkers is. The idea that I've actually heard referenced by uh, Lewis Carroll or quotes from Lewis Carroll. and Maybe some folks were thinking about this while they were listening to you. All this talk about words. It's a conversation from Through the Looking Glass. Humpty Mm -hmm. Dumpty says, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean. Neither more more nor less. Yep. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master. That's all. So it's all about yep. who's power. the master. It's all yep. about the power. Right. Yep. Now, what's hilarious now is, uh, and then drawing this specifically to Christians, the Christian worldview says there is a pillar, there is a foundation, there is a reference point, there is a center, and it's He by person my name is referenced for example in john chapter one in the beginning was the word the logos and the word was with god and the word was god this is the foundation of everything that is to come Uh, not only these words referencing the book of genesis which is axiomatic uh, for the believer in the gospel but the book of John, which is axiomatic for uh, this narrative of Christ Himself, God's Word, God's image, come directly from God—the exact image, the exact word, no more, no less. This is where the Christian starts. Now, the non-Christian has a very different view, and that you've articulated there. I, there's no specific foundation. There's no specific uh, central sphere. But what there is is power, and it's what's hilarious is that they're the ones who are constantly talking about the power and who's going to get it among humans and who's had it before and who needs to wrest it back now. Can we get enough people together who can become powerful so that they won't be hurt by the powerful people in the past? Whereas the consistent Christian says, I am not supposed to have that kind of power. God has that power. God is omnipotent. That is all-powerful. That is not my job. It's not a, what we call a communicable attribute. And so the people who are constantly obsessed with power are the ones constantly assuming and accusing other people of being obsessed with it. And frankly, it's projection, Michael. You get this view of people saying it's all about the power, uh, they're obsessed with it, and, and the Christian is kind of past that, or at least the wise, mature Christian is past that. And so you get then uh, this movement and it it goes from the academy then, these old thinkers uh, who are being picked up by other thinkers and who modify and then pass it along, pick it up, modify and pass along with or without, uh, you know, theses that they use to earn uh, their doctorates in in, uh, philosophy or whatever. You get these ideas distributed in culture through the generations for at least a century now. And especially they especially take off, I think, at the popular level with the advent of the Internet. And as I mentioned, I think they resonate with a lot of people. There's a, there's a strange comfort in just admitting there is no foundation if that is your personal experience. You didn't have a stable home life. You didn't have parents who loved each other and stayed commitment, uh, committed. You didn't have a church that illustrated that they are built on the cornerstone of Christ and therefore unshakable. Your whole life you've spent shaking. Why in the world then would you believe uh, that there is some stability in the world? Uh, This postmodernism and this deconstructionism certainly makes sense based on what you've seen. And you may have never uh, read any of these guys, but you feel their ideas or you catch them from celebrities Yes, or even from Christian celebrities like, let's say, Joshua Harris, a couple of men named Bell, a historian out there somewhere. There's a few uniquely Christian nonfiction writers who I think are being picked up by individual Christians who may read fiction and fantasy and therefore count as our audience, but they're also picking up on these non-fiction ideas that appeal to their imagination.
2: So I want to touch on a couple of things here. So I think we can do that was that the Derda is always the heavy lifting. But I think your audience will be able to grab this because they're all writers and readers. And 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 if they've if they've captured that first portion, that's the headiest part to get around. That's the trek uphill we can ski all the way down now because what your readers will have picked up on is, look, if you can, if, if words have no objective meaning and if everything just get is all context and interpretation, then we can interpret the world as many different ways as we want. And I can interpret what you say to me in potentially as many different ways as I want or as you want.
1: And in the most cynical way possible is often the case.
0: Yep. Well, then we'll, we'll talk to in chapter two about how I think this, this, this milieu, this atmosphere is infecting even superhero movies right now. Mm. If there are no yep. foundations and everything can be deconstructed, then people will, of good faith anyway, will feel that in these stories, even if they can't put their finger on what's gone wrong with them.
2: That's right. What Dared has basically done here is the lockpick of Western civilization. He's picked the lock of the Enlightenment world. Right, Because all of a sudden, because the Enlightenment world was based on, well, we have these truths, and we build on the truth, and we're seeking truth. And is going to say, look, even if you could get an objective view of the world, as soon as you try to describe it, everyone needs to interpret what you're saying. You could never communicate in an objective way that is stable, that holds itself together, that is universal, absolute, and objective. Because your words still need to be interpreted. So it's interpretation all the way down. The objectivity is gone. All you have is subjects and subjective interpretation. Meaning itself becomes a product of the subject. Meaning is not out there to be discovered. Truth is not out there to be discovered. Truth is what? It's built by us. It's constructed. Comes
0: from within,
2: man. So now, Michael Foucault is going to come along and we're going to oversimplify him drastically because we only really need one idea from him. And his idea is that truth is not an objective matter of what corresponds to the world. What he's going to say, look, lots of people throughout history have thought lots of different things were
1: true. Truth is a social label. It's a social construct. Yeah.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gets, it's a label that gets put on things. Well, how does a label get put on things? Well, there are certain people in a, in a particular society, there are certain people who are given the right to do that. They're given the power in The ancient culture, it might be the voodoo shaman. In another culture, it might be the priest. In another culture, it might be the cleric or the the imam or the rabbi. In a different culture, it's the medicine man. In our culture, it's the scientist who gets to put the label of true on things. And things that are the label true elevates a certain idea to a particular status, right? It gives it a social status. It gives it social power. It gives those ideas prestige and clout. And so he says, really, the thing that's mediating truth is power. And you might say, as he says, as he intimates, that knowledge and power are two features of the same object. It's not the old Francis Bacon idea that knowledge is power, right? What it's saying, what he's saying is that knowledge is created by and through power, and then it self-reinforces. The people who get to decide what's true get to decide what's true. They have the power to decide what's true, and then they decide what is true based on their interests, biases, etc., and then the things that they label true, those concepts, are then used to reinforce the power of the people who decide what's true. So, the scientist decides that certain ideas are true, and those certain ideas reinforce the scientific narrative, and then the scientific narrative then justifies the power of the scientist who then gets to decide what's true.
1: I'm trying very hard not to comment on a very well-known scientist who has done this. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. Right. We could get and a whole so of the you rabbit could, yeah. trail. Well, we already
1: yeah. conceded <laughs> that we would not do such.
2: You could see how that view would have intuitive force. But it maybe yep. it's
0: a benevolent lie. Mm, yeah,
2: yeah. Or, But you know, you, you could see how it's got. Okay. So you add those ideas together. Mm-hmm. Derrida, look, there's no central pillar. There's no core. There's no objective frame of reference for meaning in words. And Foucault, everything is down to power. Now mix those two together, and the picture that emerges is the organizing principle isn't truth or objective truth, that the organizing principle is power. Mm. That power is the thing that ultimately is used to divide the world, or to map the world, or to make sense of the world, or to decide what's true. And you might say. That deciding what's true, breaking up the world, organizing the world in particular ways gives people certain power. If you organize the world conceptually in one particular way, that might be advantageous to one person rather than another person. And so what this looks like is, in its most cynical view, is people who decide what they label as true in order to benefit themselves.
0: Right. Because everybody's doing it. Why shouldn't I do it? Uh, It's just the way the world is. Nothing is locked down. Everything's in motion. Everything is fluid. And I think these views have have tempted or appealed to uh, even many Christians. And I think there's some bad ways to respond to that. We may get to that in a little bit here. I think you can you can respond to that and say, "Oh well, you know, you're just woke. You're just a leftist. Uh, you're you're a cultural Marxist. You're a special snowflake. You know, or even you don't even love Jesus." I, I look at that a little bit more sympathetically, and I think, no, often these ideas are caught, not taught, especially because you do have some Christian celebrities uh, who are apparently trained in a particular evangelical culture. Uh, who are not accustomed to these ideas. Uh, These ideas, suddenly they they get to a point in their professional life or their Christian life or both. Suddenly these ideas seem very attractive. Uh, I'm going to deconstruct my faith. I'm going to knock down the foundation and try something entirely different. And you can't stop me because I already know all the apologetics. I may have preached about them or sung about them. Like, I know what you're going to say. Uh, and they feel very, very, very much beyond these things. And so they will make stories or songs, post articles, sell a workshop, anything like this, uh, in order to help you, uh, gentle or faithful uh, or unfaithful Christian, <laughs> do the same thing. This affects the Christian nonfiction market, uh, but it also affects uh, the fiction that Christians get, because you get these ideas start to seep in. And we'll talk about that uh, in uh, in chapter two of this discussion. First, let's halt for a story that does not, uh, hopefully, deconstruct things in the wrong way. It is Once Upon a Ren our second sponsor author A.C. Castillo. Keltia has a normal 17-year-old life, except that she was found on the steps of a police station when she was a baby. And she was born with green hair, and no one knows why. A fun day takes a fateful twist after a group of Ren barbarians who actually seem dangerous start chasing her across the grounds. When she follows a handsome jouster, Emerson, into a hollow tree to hide, she finds herself in a fantasy land of giants, killer unicorns, powerful fairies, and dryads. Can Emerson help her find the key to return home, or will Keltia be swallowed up by this impossible land? Once Upon a Ren Fair is available at Amazon. You can get that purchase link at lorehaven.com podcast sponsors. Look for the name AC Castillo. See the cover there as well, and get the basic link in our show notes for episode 153. Zach and Michael, we see there uh, a a YA fantasy that follows a a very familiar uh, type of story that I see is a person who doesn't know where she's come from. uh, Usually a young woman uh, who has this kind of uh, non-traditional family background. Maybe she's orphaned, uh, maybe there's stepfamily Uh, are a blended family, and then they end up in this uh, fantasy world where things don't make sense. And I think that actually plays really well into chapter two for this discussion, how these ideas, uh, in a good way, I think, are in many stories, but other stories take them in very unhealthy directions.
1: Yeah, so I've I've got a list here of some movies I'll go through quickly that I think are really good representations of what we're talking about, postmodernism and deconstructionism. Probably the pinnacle story that everyone's familiar with today would be Game of Thrones. Uh, now I haven't seen this, I haven't watched it, I haven't, I read haven't it. seen this, I haven't watched yeah, it or so read I'm, it. This is secondhand, okay, but it's basically just this endless nihilistic quest for power and and just knocking everyone else off the board. Everybody's doing it, but but something that's more from that I am more familiar with is Fight Club. So this came out twenty something years ago. It was a book before that. And Fight Club was all about, there's no good guys or or bad guys, there's just an oppressive system that's enslaving us all, and its name is capitalism, and we are going to respond to it, ultimately, by blowing up the foundations, literally, (laughs) spoiler alert, that's how the book ends, or the movie ends.
0: Oh, is that the shot with the crumbling buildings? I haven't seen all of it, I've just seen that shot, okay. Crumbling buildings. What do you know? Wow. That's really on the nose. Yes, it's
1: very on the nose. And then more recently is the TV series, Mr. Robot, which takes a very similar, uh, line of deconstructing this oppressive system through computer hacking and and some other kind of social mayhem. Um, we see it in the Amazon, uh, superhero series, the boys. It's not even anti-hero. It's like, there are really no heroes that everyone in power is evil and corrupt. Uh, superpowers make you corrupt. So power is evil. And then, you know, there are some older like films that are more just in the postmodern variety, but that really get at what we're talking about. So there's blade runner where you're not sure what's real, you know, who's a uh, human, who's a replicant. So it's very much a struggle for identity. There's pulp fiction, which is uh there's no good or evil. There's no heroes or villains. Uh, there's be kind rewind, which is all about kind of reinventing, Movies, and, and, uh, and, and it's a fun, it's a comedy, but it's all about kind of creating your own story on top of the existing story. And then there's Tropic Thunder, which is a movie about a movie, recently um, uh, brought back into light because of, uh, so Robert Downey Jr. was basically in blackface for this movie. And uh, you know, 15 years ago, everyone laughed at that. Nowadays, that's problematic, and we got to talk about it and have a struggle session, I guess, about it. But he didn't apologize for it, which is very interesting, very uh, unusual for Hollywood celebrities to not apologize for that, because it's basically making a critique or a joke about how Hollywood, I guess, erases persons of color, w- whitewashes things, whatever. But that was very much a movie about the hyper-reality that movies put us in, the movie industry puts us in. So it's kind of a deconstruction of Hollywood in in a very clever and funny way but a very crass way at times but these are a lot of films that for these ideas and and essentially say that this is the way to approach society i mean in Mr Robot their little like hacker group is called f society like the letter f and you know so edgy we won't explain that any further you know that cynical view that there's no truth there's no objectivity we're just going to tear everything down that's shown very clearly in all of these. And I think that it really leaves the viewer, you know, with the choice. It's like, do I follow the same pattern and apply this to my life? Do I just give up hope that there is any objective truth and reality out there? Or do I search for something that is true and something that is more solid i have two
0: franchises i want to talk about as briefly as i can so i do not take over the show uh if uh, deirdre and foucault might take over the show if i'm not careful marvel movies and star trek will take over the show so i'll try to keep it brief and then i want to ask michael (laughs) for his thoughts because we were talking a little about uh, star trek the motion picture earlier okay so a lot of the accusations about why is the mcu failing or why is the dc failing if you've been on youtube you see uh, these uh, dime-a-dozen uh, kind of uh, conservative reviewers, uh, Critical Drinker, and some others uh, talking about uh, how these shows are all woke, and they're all about the message, and there's a lot of truth to that. And by the way, you know, watch your ears, uh, gentle Christian, if you're listening to these. They like to go vulgarian with the language. Uh, I can put up with it easily enough, and I think they make uh, generally some pretty good points often they're deconstructing deconstructionism of, under the label of wokeism. And, and maybe we should have said at the beginning of the show, hey, we'll mention that word, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch-all term. I think wokeism includes, but is not limited to, uh, our fantastical foe today, deconstructionism. And I wish that people would be a little more careful with their language. The issue with these superhero movies and why people are feeling, even if they cannot uh, specifically describe what's gone wrong with them, uh, is I think uh, the Michael's example earlier of all the buildings are shaking. Nothing is built on a foundation. Everything is in flux. When he said that, I'm literally picturing Doctor Strange, because Doctor mm, Strange yes. will go into uh, this world where all the buildings are curving in on themselves, and it's all trippy, man. And what do you know? This imagery, this concept, comes out of not just uh, this imaginary mysticism, but some of the caught-not-taught ideas going back to the 60s, because that's when Doctor Strange was made up. Uh, this whole idea of a wizard who can then uh, you know, keep one foot in the real world, but also go into these trippy environments where uh, up is down and black is white and water is dry and all of these uh, contradictions. Doctor Strange, in a sense, can be said to enter a postmodern world. Now, in the original uh, Doctor Strange movie, it's very clear that these domains are the exception. Uh, it's actually professing Christian Scott Derrickson who directed that movie. He is using kind of these mystical tropes in service toward a far more redemptive metaphor. Dr. Strange taking the usual but happy uh, superhero idea of the Christ figure figure at the end, uh, dying repeatedly in a time loop to save the world. All right, good stuff. Christians can rejoice in that and be happy that we see a glimpse of the gospel even in this uh, secular superhero movie. Nowadays, however, you get the problem that people have already been talking about, and so I won't belabor it. The problem of the multiverse. The multiverse is the ultimate deconstruction of an earnest superhero tale because now there really are no consequences. It's not just that Nick Fury or Agent Coulson or anybody can die, and it was a fake out death, and no, oh, no, then there's another fake out death, and they planned it all along. They're just that smart. That's why they get to be super spies. It's not just that. Now it doesn't matter. Uh, If uh, Iron Man dies, you mentioned Robert Downey Jr. uh, earlier, Zach, it doesn't matter that he dies. You can go fetch a copy uh, from the other corner of the multiverse and bring him back. Uh, That is if uh, Robert Downey Jr. uh, drops his rate (laughs) low enough for them to be able to afford him. I think that a lot of fans uh, would kind of like that, but not really. Uh, A lot more fans are saying, no, I, I want this world to have weight and consequences I don't want characters being flippant about the supposed uh, uh, mortal injuries that they could suffer in the middle of this battle. Uh, I want death to be serious. I want things to have foundations. I don't want everything constantly challenged uh, by the style uh, or the character actions of this story. I think that's another reason, uh, by the way, uh, why the Ant-Man movie uh, has failed so much. It's kind of that same idea. You go down to the quantum realm. Uh, where nothing is the same and there's all these weirdnesses going on. And then there's a guy who's basically a giant head in a robotic egg-shaped floating chair. Uh, and he's not a creeptastic villain like in the comics, but he's just a goofy villain. And you see his little tushy at one point, and it's just weird. Uh, it's not going to be successful with mainstream audiences, but I also think it just it just removes the stakes from the universe, and particularly if you've got all these endless copies of a single villain Uh, rather than a single villain uh, thanos uh, who needs to be defeated you've branched things out now from this one linear story into all these branching realities and people are either going to get bored or lose track or get distracted and dc now of course is doing something similar and enough said about them i want to talk real quick about star trek so michael mentioned earlier this classic humanist idea of humanity has evolved beyond god Uh, it was a trope that recurred throughout the original series they tried to play it safe for the censors with that whole episode with Apollo, which is really just a code for us giving up on the real God uh, using the language of the Greek pantheon. But then they just went all in uh, with Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, and some other, uh, other uh, trope stories, very humanist, atheistic stories, even in the next generation. Frankly, we wouldn't be talking about the next generation now, I think, if Gene Roddenberry, God bless him, uh, had not shuffled off this mortal coil. Uh, hopefully not without repenting first of his uh, cosme- or, or atheistic humanism. Uh, the show got better after that because Roddenberry didn't want his human characters to fight. Uh, he wanted them to be just so perfect and all the conflict came from outside. Once he died, the show got better. But there are still some, uh, some tropes going along there about, oh, well, we've moved past God. And I think some of that deconstruction has affected or infected even the newer Star Trek series now. I think that's a big reason why people are not big fans of Star Trek Discovery. They're constantly deconstructing Starfleet. There's always an admiral who's got an agenda or a secret society out there. Somebody's hiding something. And then the supposed Starfleet professionals uh, seem to have a lot of unresolved trauma in their past uh people laugh and i think uh, wrongfully accuse the main character of discovery for quote crying all the time in quote i think what they're really saying is this person is so traumatized i'm not sure if she uh, belongs in uh these uh, soldier explorers in outer space uh, that is uh, the Starfleet of the federation however i must say that it is such a relief and refreshing Uh, When you get a Star Trek story now that doesn't go for that, and I would actually put the third season of Picard now, I think, safely in that category. Uh, They're correcting for these problems. The main characters from the next generation are flawed. Uh, But there are, Michael, I must say, there are foundations in this story. Unquestioned virtues that are not being stepped on by flippant dialogue or story deconstruction. Uh, The story, without giving away spoilers, like seriously and earnestly questions Captain Picard's decision to make Starfleet his family uh, to the exclusion of other family that he might not know about. I watched episode four last night. It was absolutely gripping. Uh, Real virtues on display, uh, real heroism. Of course, it's still classic humanist. You know, there's no God in sight. Uh, But the morality from the early modernism era, you know, that. That stuff that got deconstructed by so many people, like that's there. Family now matters again in the Star Trek universe, and relationships matter, uh, and courage is a real thing, and we're not going to deconstruct that.
2: Yeah, uh, Chapter One of a Primer in, on Postmodernism by Stanley Draygrens is called "Star Trek and the Postmodern Generation," and it focuses on the shift from the early Star Trek of Captain Kirk to Picard and the Next Generation, and and that shift. So. To give a quick definition of postmodernism, and then I'm going to hit on what you just said. Postmodernism refers to an intellectual mood, and array of cultural expressions that call into questions the ideals, principles, and values that lay at the heart of the modern mindset. Remember when you said they're bringing some values back in? Postmodernism is the questioning of all of that, right? And he says, quote, postmodernity in turn refers to an emerging epoch, the era in which we are living, the time when postmodern outlook increasingly shapes our society post-modernity is the era in which postmodern ideas, attitudes, and values reign when post-modernism culture. Okay? Now, he says, in one sense, postmodernists have no worldview. There is no center, right? A denial of the reality of a unified world as the object of our perception is at the heart of post-modernism. Post-moderns reject the possibility of constructing a single correct worldview and are content to speak of many views and, by extension, many worlds. Right? The ideas. And you can kind of see some of this in Star Trek, particularly in The Next Generation, when they go to different worlds and have different meta narratives and deciding whether or not they're going to intervene or not. Is this society allowed to be touched on by us? Who are we to say that they're wrong? You can see that, right? There's no grand unified truth. In the Star Trek: The Next Generation universe,
0: supposedly, Michael. Supposedly, there is, and it's called the Prime Directive. Uh, that a society that has developed warp technology should not intervene in the affairs of a society that is not. But as fans know, and often uh, laugh about, Starfleet captains are constantly disregarding the Prime Directive. Yeah. Yes, it's no Very longer squishy. really that prime. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's the point. The Prime Directive isn't actually prime. Yeah, the exceptions overturn the rule. <laughs> yeah, the
2: Prime suggestion. <laughs> right by replacing the modern view with a multiplicity of views and worlds the postmodern era has effectively replaced knowledge with interpretation so it's the prime directive but we always are reinterpreting the prime to direct- see if the prime directive is really that prime that's kind of the point that's grenz now we're going to talk about the story in that early part i focused on derrida and foucault so that people could see the alloy that was created which dissolves everything, the universal acid, the universal solvent. The problem with the universal solvent is what do you hold it in? (laughs) Once it gets going, it never stops. It destroys everything. And so the framework in which they've tried to contain it is a framework that you might call a framework of emancipation. Because if it's going to dissolve everything, we can just dissolve all the boundaries. And you can see how it works. As soon as you say, this is good and this is evil... Well, Derda is going to destabilize the meaning of the word good and the meaning of the word evil. And then Foucault is going to say, what you determine to be good and evil is a product of your interests. And all of the sudden, that objective frame of good and evil begins to become shaky. How do we know what's good or evil? Who decides? Whose interests are being served by our definition of good and evil and who benefits? And what biases are in play? You see how that works? Yeah. You just... Instantly start. And the problem is that good and evil are not merely social const- constructs that are are selected. Good and evil are like the poles of the electrical current. Mm. If you get your wires across the whole thing, short circuits and the lights of your civilization go out. But as soon as you forward a view, you can instantly start going after it by going after the language and going after the intent and therefore go- saying, look, your objective the idea of good and evil isn't really so objective. It's your interpretation, just done by your biases. Your language is shaky. The way you're breaking apart the world is shaky. And you can just keep going with this. It's just endlessly deconstructive. Now, deconstruction doesn't just happen. So now we have to talk a little bit about deconstruction. And this, I think, is where your audience might catch a little more. The way that deconstruction works isn't a technical thing. It's not a process. Deconstruction operates at the level of meaning. It's to challenge, subvert, to undermine the meaning. You play with things. You mock and scorn them. You suck the power out of them. You dethrone them.
0: Flippancy, Wormwood. That's what C.S. Lewis would yeah. have described it.
2: So you can deconstruct something by a serious historical analysis of it in which you try to show that really it was the product of biases, or you can do it through humor and laughter and clowning it by mocking a thing so that it loses its power so that it's no longer a thing that you look up at in awe, but it's a thing that you you kind of look at and go, oh, oh, I see how that works. So one way to do that is in a lot of the superhero movies is the clowning of the archetype.
0: Oh, Absolutely. We're in on the joke. We, we know that this guy is supposed to be the big hero, but let's see what happens when a woman punches him right here. Ha ha, some hero now. Yes. Uh, somebody did a compilation. Like It's weird how often this happens in the Marvel movies phase four. A woman beats up on the supposedly powerful man. And it's a, that's a sexism thing maybe, but it's also a deconstruction. Men are supposed yep. to be the heroes of this story. I mean, that's the guy's name in the movie title, but look at this. His sister kicks him right in the mm-hmm. And right here in Loki's TV show, uh, there's also a female version of Loki because multiverse, nothing is fixed. Nothing is resting on a foundation. Everything is fluid, including your very self. Yes, and that's
2: that's what you just touched on there. We're in on the joke. That's what Richard Rorty called irony. We're telling these stories, but we really know it's just all a construct. Hmm. We're living in the constructs, But we're not foolish enough to think that these constructs are really rooted in some deep objective or tied to some deep objective pillars or rooted in some soil that goes down to a core. We know it's all constructed.
0: Michael, do you want to hear about the ultimate MCU deconstruction that took place last year? Go for it. Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned this (laughs) before on the podcast and I haven't seen the show, but I did see the clip. It was the She-Hulk TV show. Yeah. Literally at the end of the uh, series, in the final episode, there's about to be a big showdown with She Hulk and actual Hulk and some other people. And it's already the ideas are pretty much deconstructing the whole idea of the hero and male and female dynamics and all of this. But then I am not making this deconstruction up. She Hulk turns to the camera and says she doesn't want this usual superhero movie, uh, Grand Slam finale stuff. So she stops her own show she scrambles out into the disney plus menu i am not still not making this up she hangs from the panels of the other disney plus shows including star wars shows and disney princess movies as well as other marvel movies she then finds her way to the writers room and challenges the writers room of she hulk and eventually she ends up in a uh, in a in a darkly lit room Uh, with an AI robot uh, meant to be a parody of uh, the Marvel uh, showrunner Kevin Feige. This absolutely overturns any vestigial seriousness (laughs) left of that universe to me, because it's all connected, folks. This is all supposed to be one shared universe. You go that far, however, and now, like what the multiverse apparently was about to do, uh, She-Hulk just did single-handedly. Uh she is now the most powerful entity in the MCU. Uh this uh, this female version of of the MCU. Hulk which I understand that I didn't make it up. Uh I understand <laughs> there you know you break the fourth wall in the comics and all of that and and uh, Deadpool and all of this. Yeah, Deadpool But true. in the MCU it, everything is supposed to be connected. So now we're all in on the joke. Uh everybody is a joke. Uh, no one has meaning anymore. It's all a Disney Plus menu, you guys. So that makes me wonder. Then, okay, what is so clever about that? Uh, my siblings and I were using a 1990s computer program named Storybook Weaver uh, on MS DOS, and uh, you know, running MS DOS prompt with Windows 95, <laughs> and we were having the character become self-aware and climb out onto the menus and try to get himself a girlfriend, and we thought it was hilarious. Now that stuff is mainstream and supposedly the pinnacle of storytelling. Are we serious? Like we were doing it to be goofy. Uh, now like it is just so absurdist. And, and so you can laugh at it. You can say, well, ha ha, at least the show didn't get into, you know, top 10 or top 20 you watched uh, pre- uh, streaming shows uh, last summer, of 2022, but on the one level, it is genuinely harmful now because we here at Lorehaven, and I think as Christians, should take stories seriously. We should, even, even the funny ones, we should take them seriously. Uh, imagination is serious. It's a gift from God. We must be earnest about the power that is in imagination and not cast it so lightly aside uh, into a pile of jokes and flippancy. So I think you're really onto something, Michael. Th- this is, I think, hopefully the lowest point. Of deconstructionism but I wonder now how much lower can we go in our fantastical storytelling that is kind of like so in the 1980s we call that uh, James and Helen
2: actually call that in their book cynical theories the high deconstructive phase you could think about it like in the in the, in the middle ages we had the high scholastic phase in the 80s we had the high deconstructive phase this is like the high deconstructive phase of postmodernism
0: it's nothing actually has any weight mm. We, we all just made it up. It's just words referring to other words, tropes referring to other tropes, tropes yep. upon tropes. It's, it's all tropes, man. Wow. And I found the tropes. tropes I'm going to write all the it way down. down. Yeah. yeah.
2: And when you go right down, there's actually nothing there. So the perfect analogy for this, getting, getting out of a theory now and, and into where I think your audience might have a bit more fun with this, is it's like pro wrestling.
0: Yes. Oh, shots fired. It's all real, though. It's all real.
2: But here's the thing about pro wrestling. Back in, say, the 1980s, when Hulk Hogan body slammed you and did the atomic leg drop, the match was over. That was it. match was over. The guy did the finisher. It's over. And the reason that happened is because even though wrestling was a planned story, within the match, there are rules. A body slam does a certain thing to you. A leg drop does a certain thing to you. A punch does a certain thing to you. There's rules to what happens. Okay. In order to tell a story in the ring, in order for the story to matter, the moves have to mean something. And so the body slam and then atomic leg drop, that means it's over. There was a moment when Hulk Hogan, right at the end of his career, was having a match against The Rock. And Hulk Hogan was bad guy and was supposed to be the bad guy. And The Rock was supposed to be the good guy. Problem is that the match was in Montreal. And Montreal, that's a city that loves Hulk Hogan, man. uh For whatever reasons, that city loves Hulk Hogan. And at the start of the match, they were they was doing that thing, you know, where they stand face-to-face and kind of look at each other. And Hulk Hogan pushes The Rock and the people boo. Or is so the people cheer. The Rock pushes Hulk Hogan, the people boo. And in that moment, that set the rules for the match because typically the good guy wrestles a certain way and the bad guy wrestles a certain way. And Hulk Hogan tells the story. He says to The Rock, okay, brother, I'm going to have to take this match over. Follow what I do. Because we have to tell a story in a certain way Mm. because the gravity of the crowd is orienting who's good and who's evil in that particular thing and so they had to have certain moves so they had to have a situation where like the rock takes the hulk hogan's belt off and starts hitting him with it because that's a bad guy move mm-hmm, mm-hmm. certain things needed to occur and the way that they end the match is hulk hogan does this thing where he gets hit and he stops and he starts to shake and he point and and uh it's this thing from the 80s that hulk hogan used to do where he'd take the energy from the crowd and become invincible and He'd be losing, but he'd come back and win. But he came back and fell short and The Rock won. And then at the end, he he struggles to his feet. And The Rock is standing there watching him. And Hulk Hogan kind of hobbles over and extends his hand. Because that's what a good guy does, right? And it matters. Hmm. That That's probably 20 years ago. Yeah. Now, you'll have a guy get like, you know, five atomic leg drops, three body slams, two tombstone <laughs> pile drivers and a stone cold stunner, And he still kicks out of it because the moves don't mean anything anymore. Wow, right. The moves wow. don't matter. The moves don't do anything. No move matters. Everything is silly, right? So because everything is silly and nothing matters within the wrestling universe, it d- how do you tell a story? Hmm. She-Hulk can't tell a story anymore because nothing matters. It's yeah. all just an up.
1: Yeah, so there we're is about nothing. Hulk Hogan feel, and She Hulk.
2: <laughs> right? But nothing nothing matters. And if nothing matters, there's nothing to orient the story and give it weight and give it direction. The story can have no lighthouse, compasses, or anchors. It's just a drift on a sea of words, a drift on a sea of tropes, all of which can be deconstructed. And so nothing matters. There is nothing with which the creators can orient the story towards any particular direction and that way and that means guess what nothing matters and if not and what they're doing in their deconstruction is saying well of course nothing matters it's all ironic we're in on the joke we all know obviously nothing matters i float above this i it's this how do i say it ironic self-detachment from the world And part of this is motivated by, well, if I am ironically self-detached, nothing can ever disappoint me. Yeah. I can't ever be hurt.
0: I'm detached. I'm in on the joke. Yeah. I will become so powerful that I'm I'm not bound by these earthly constraints where people can hurt me down there. I thought I was standing on a firm foundation before, uh, but it turns out it wasn't. And it's just easier for me to admit that. And then maybe write a story about it. Michael, I think, I mean, we've nagged at the MCU long enough, but uh, you know they could use all the help they can get from people who truly believe in these kinds of stories, uh, who can truly say, uh, like uh, Nick Fury uh, in the first Avengers in 2012, I still believe in heroes. That director was Joss Whedon, who, of course, uh, proved to be a very shaky foundation. He was doing some really terrible things uh, all along. He, I think he got rightfully me me-tooed. Uh, so it kind of fell into some scandal there. Uh, but there were some other better movie directors of those original uh, Marvel films. Uh, John Favreau with Iron Man or um, Joe Johnston with, uh, with Captain America, like some other ones who seem to be from an older school, like maybe more uh, influenced by uh, more of these uh, modernist ideas, or at least these assumed inherited versions of morality. Don't know what their personal lives are like, but they knew that when it was time to direct a movie, you got some rules. You've got good guys, you've got bad guys, you've got good guys who struggle and bad guys who have some human tendencies. But otherwise, at the end, the bad guy's going to go down, uh, generally not because the hero kills him, but he is uh, he's faced with his own comeuppance. Uh, his schemes come to ruin, uh, almost like a proverb from the Bible. Uh, and then the hero uh, saves the girl and flies away into the sunset. Uh, You can call that a trope, or you can say, no, this is realistic. This is how a story ought to be. And the Christian, uh, doing some pop culture discernment, looks at that and says, "Uh, this is at least a faint reflection of the gospel, and that's why people love it, uh, even if they don't believe in Jesus. You've got this Jesus-type character on the screen, and that'll do for now. And then hopefully you trace the light reflected on the silver screen back to its source uh, in the original gospel. So that's the secular story, and I, I think we'd like to see those kinds of heroes come back. I think that's why people loved, loved, loved Top Gun Maverick because Top Gun Maverick was made old school, and we could let that take over too. But the hero got the girl and flew into the sunset, and it was majestic, and and we loved it. And uh, you know, Tom Cruise did it very well. It wasn't woke. It wasn't agenda. Uh, they even subverted the whole uh, hero sleeps with his girlfriend thing uh, because uh, Tom Cruise's character is being called even in his 50s, apparently, but it's never too late, I guess. He's being called to a more traditional uh, lifestyle. Uh, He needs to not only fly away with the girl, he needs to marry the girl and take care of her daughter. Uh, And I'm sure lots of family audiences liked that, too. I'd love to see more stories like that. But before we move to Chapter 3, I just want to touch real quick on, I mean, we've we've talked about these more mainstream secular stories. Uh, I just want a quick thought from you, too, Zach, about how some of these postmodernist deconstruction ideas can, and to some extent, have uh, gotten into Christian-made stories. And just a quick bit of shop talk here, Michael, we'll be back to you in a moment. But anytime then you see, I think, mindless banter in a story that does not advance the story, uh, that team seems to deconstruct the tropes, to me, that smacks of a little bit of this deconstructive approach. You, gentle reader, just reading a book. You're reading a book. Uh, Yes, we know about the tropes. We have read all the lists on the internet. This is the part where this happens, and this is the part where that happens, and it just becomes so self-aware that you lose your immersion in the story. I think that may be one little element of the deconstruction, but a, a more glaring example, I would say, is a Christian author who very clearly does have a chip on her shoulder about other Christians or about other Christians' conservative rules. And it becomes very clear very quickly that this story is, in some sense, a deconstruction project. Someone is questioning the evangelical environment they grew up with, and they need to do some work on that, but they want to have you, the reader, pay for their healing exercise by reading the book. Uh, We've actually seen some of these uh, at, at Lorehaven. We've not reviewed them, but it just becomes very clear, oh, this is propaganda, and we'll talk about this in our next episode about sentimentalism, but the old propaganda was the author, the Christian evangelical author, feeling like the book needs to get you saved, otherwise it's not worth anything. Uh, you're the backslidden reader that the author has made up, you need to read the book and then go on this journey with the character and then learn to let go and let God and you know, learn to be loved again and uh, maybe even go back to church and get the girl. Uh, that was kind of the old sentimentalism I saw, the old uh, goal of, of these writers. But the new version is you need to question everything. You need to question everything. Find the truth within yourself. You know, Question the words, as Michael was saying, it's all words, it's all systems. Uh, it's all about power, and you need to look for the power that you have within yourself. Oh, God put it there, of course. We're not pagans here, we're not atheists. God put the power there. Uh, but that is your true source of strength. Uh, not the gospel, not Jesus Christ, or a fantasy world equivalent. Uh, certainly not, uh, not the church, because the church is corrupt. Oh, that foundation's gone, if it ever existed. The church is corrupt. Uh, your, your family can't help you. Your parents can't help you. It's you and your friends, uh, and maybe whatever identity you make up for yourself. I see bits and pieces of these tropes coming in, even to Christian-made stories, uh, and it's still early. I'm not saying all the books are poison. I mean, we're, we're finding the good stuff here at Lorehaven. Uh, but where would we be if we weren't trying to spo- uh, spy the fantastical foe coming from a distance? Uh, Zach, have you seen any of these? And can we touch on those real quick just before we move to chapter three here about the better versions?
1: You know more Christian novels than I do, Stephen, uh, j- just like I know more uh, Keanu Reeves movies than you. But the, tr- the overall trend I see happens in three stages, very briefly. Stage one is people question the goodness of pastors and ministry leaders or denominational leaders because they're just in it for the power. Step two is people try to separate Christ from Paul and say that, well, we we don't what do we need these, you know, apostles for? All I need is Christ. I just read letters letters of Christ too. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. And you know, we we talked earlier about what is the foundation. Well, Paul says the foundation is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. It's it is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone, but and he is the rock on which the church stands, but it's also the teaching of the, the rest of the Bible, which Christ inhabits that because he is the word. But that's the second phase, is trying to separate out all these human teachers that are fallible, so how can we trust them? And then the third phase, and this is really the dead end of deconstructionism, is questioning Christ himself. There's a well-known TikTok pastor that has said, well, Jesus had to repent of his um, racism towards the Cero women.
0: No, who, who had no. to
1: who had to teach him, you know, a thing or two. And once you get to that point, you don't have Jesus anymore. You don't have the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You just have another human being that we can learn from. But he's one of many guides, and you got to look within yourself for the the true light, and uh, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit in chapter 3 here, but that, that's the real danger of where all this leads. That's the dead end. It's, it's apostasy, basically.
0: It is apostasy, but it's a very attractive apostasy uh, because it resonates with the lived experience, people will say, uh, with the Christian who has struggled. Uh, why wouldn't you question every pastor? Uh, why wouldn't you question then the Apostle Paul? After all, he was terrible about women, uh, and maybe I'm a woman, and I have experienced that kind of misogyny for real. Uh, in what I thought was a safe religious environment. Uh, And then if I have torn out both of those, then why should I not also tear out Christ? Uh, Maybe I find out that you can't so easily separate those red letters or even the Gospels from the rest of the Bible. It is all God's Word, red letters, black letters, uh, whatever color the letters are. uh, Christians believe it all goes together, a single revelation of the Gospel in redemptive history. So throw it all out and try something else. Uh, Just admit that it's all about the power uh, and imagination plays into that. The stories that we enjoy does feed into that. Uh, those little micro deconstructions of flippancy and lack of earnestness uh, and uh, lack of even uh, what Michael was saying earlier about <laughs> the wrestling, like uh, suddenly even uh, fight moves don't have the meaning that they once did. And you even see some deconstruction in the trope of uh, the tiny little uh, action hero woman without uh, special superpowers. Uh, throwing around these giant men you know in hand-to-hand combat that is just not realistic and all those things add up it does not match reality it's like suddenly everything is filmed in front of a green screen or in the volume if the sets aren't real uh, you never even had a foundation it's all projections onto a super high resolution you know 12k series of screens Uh, encircling the set. Uh, It may look really realistic, and the uh, good director can make use of that and make you forget that they didn't actually go out to a desert to show The Mandalorian. Uh, But a bad director, by the way, doesn't do that well with it. Well, we're not a movie podcast, so we do need to move on, and we certainly talked about some uh, some more flippant stories, more deconstructive stories, but we do need to talk uh, however briefly about meaningful stories in Chapter 3, but first we must pause, not for station identification, but for constructive purpose our third sponsor for this episode the realm makers 2023 conference Uh, you may be a faithful listener you may be not just a a reader of these stories but also a writer in waiting if so you must attend the realm makers 2023 conference hundreds of writers who create fantasy sci-fi and other stories will join this Christian-led organization for the 11th annual conference this July 13th through 15th in St. Louis, Missouri. I love it when they get there. Authors can register at Realmakers.com for the event. They can choose to attend in person in a place with a foundation at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel, or you can live stream on the dedicated Realmsphere social network, says the co-owner and CEO of Realm Makers Rebecca P. Minor. We have enjoyed the privilege for over a decade of connecting christian creators to one another and to opportunities in the publishing marketplace we're not just about bringing expert faculty to the conference for teaching although that's one of the pillars of what we do we've also discovered that a writer's success is tied into relationships one way or another the annual conference offers a supportive environment where authors can take the next step in their creative journey You can go to realmmakers.com to learn more about this event and to register, get more information too. In our news release, we will link to that at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Just look for the title Realm Makers there or get the basic link in our show notes for episode 153. Uh, Zach and Michael, I'm hearing words in even the sponsor text that leap out to me just because of our emphasis on foundations and pillars and solid things. Uh, realm makers now to me is much more solid an institution for its 11th event i was there for the first one in 2013 when things were a little shakier necessarily you start something out and then you build firmer foundations you get people who are more committed uh, you get more training you get professional development uh, you get people who find success doing these kinds of stories and it just it reminds me again that we can fight deconstruction with meaningful stories. Uh, whether or not you go to realm makers, uh, the Christian, whether they're writing these stories or just enjoying them, those stories are there. These stories with earnestness and meaning. Uh, Zach, where do we want to go as, as we draw to a close here with, with, with chapter three? What are you thinking about these meaningful stories?
1: Yeah, I'll just make a simple uh, summary here and, and pitch it to Michael. But I think what we need are stories with firm foundations. With, with, we've talked about the logos. So, Michael, I know you've you've talked about this before in, in some of your talks. So, why don't you kind of expand on that? Like, why do we need the logos? What does that look like in a story? How is that different from the, you know, the meaninglessness that we see in other stories?
2: To tie two threads together as our way into that, um, one of the things that you're seeing when you talked about the the deconstruction of the hero archetype is that they really are humiliating the heroes.
0: Mm. Oh, 100%. There's a
2: humiliation ritual that's going on in that, right?
0: Oh, Shang-Chi gets humiliated in the ring by his own sister. Uh, I do not like that scene. Sorry, Stans. I, I just don't.
2: Yeah, and it's there's kind of a masculine... You're not that great, because nothing is better or any worse. The hero is always... Campy and whatever else, right? You're just a trope. You're just, we deconstruct all of that and all of the power and privilege, and we're going to knock all that down. You talked about Christ and how Christ is the Logos, right? Cornerstone. And you talked about how they're going to go after him, the cornerstone. I quoted in an article I wrote for American Reformer about Jesus and John Wayne among the deplorables, and I said, It's not merely that postmodern thinking dissolves itself. It's that it has no stopping point and no limiting principle. No limiting principle. I was looking for it. Yes. It would be no problem to deconstruct everything from substitutionary atonement to the church to the Nicene Creed. Many are knocking on that door. Activist, theologian, Robert Henderson Espinosa writes, The ways of Jesus were never intended to be institutionalized. They were institutionalized as a result of power and control and the ways that post-Constantine Christianity can only be understood as an empire religion.
0: Mm, simple villains, simple motives, no nuance there, just they wanted power. They were bad guys. Well, that's a bad villain.
2: Yep. yep. It's It's a caricature of a villain. It's a caricature where you wish you had a villain. It's just raw cynicism. I mean... And I I continue, I said, if we accept this view, we can predict how the argument goes. The Council of Nicaea was structured to produce a creed that benefited the interest of Constantine and the empire. They pick and chose what goes into the Bible, yep. Yep. At the same time, legitimizing his theology, preserving his views permanently in a creed. Further, since the Nicene Creed was created by men, the creed is worked by the interests of the men who made it. In the absence of queer people and women, this means the very creed used to define orthodoxy was built on patriarchy and injustice, and since the creed was a creed of a particular type, made at a particular time and place, it's a product of the cultural biases of those who fashioned it and not an objective statement of timeless truth. Bang. Done. Gone. Nicene Creed, gone. Westminster Confession, gone. Everything. All of it. Just bang, 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 bang. So, if you can do that with the Bible, you're going to do that with your creeds, you're going to do that with your confessions, you're going to do that with your stories, and you're seeing that, right? Everything falls apart. So what do you do? That is where you need a logos. Yes. Okay? So, we were talking about words and you said In the beginning was the word, right? In the beginning was the word. That comes from John chapter one. And John is introducing this idea of the Logos. And that concept actually had already existed in Greek thought prior. Like Heraclitus was writing about a Logos, the Stoics were writing about a Logos. The idea of Logos is something like an eternal and unchanging truth which exists and can be discovered and known by anyone who seeks it. It's objective and absolute. The Logos is the thing around which the universe and the cosmos is organized. It's what makes the universe intelligible and gives it meaning. It's a design. In Encyclopedia Britannica says, in ancient Greek philosophy and early Christian theology, the Logos is the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. That's your Logos. That's your central, unifying, organizing principle around which the cosmos is wrapped and created, which organizes it, which makes it intelligible, which makes it reasonable. The Logos is the center principle around which everything else revolves. You could think about it that way. It is like the core of the earth. It gives the gravity that holds everything else in place, to use another analogy. When you eject that, when you hollow it out, you know, nothing's left. The gravity goes away. The center mass of the world is gone and everything just kind of floats off. And I, can, I think I can see why some people that's attractive, right? Because it, it's a trade-off. You, you have to give up all of your responsibility and you eject all of your responsibility. Now, the trade-off is that nothing matters and you can just play around. But I can see why you would want to say, I, I, I'm living with a detached irony from this. I am. I'm outside of this, it does, this is all, I'm, I'm above this, I know your tropes, you're trying to tug at my heartstrings, I see your motives, I see what you,
0: you see through everything. Well, you said cynicism several times, yeah. that we, we meet people who, who behave this way, they can't help it, and I at once pity them, but I also see then, well, the cycle of cynicism and even this kind of emotional violence, first toward oneself and then to others, is continuing. Uh, I've Mm -hmm. seen er, the early stages of this, the mid stages of this and the advanced stages of this. And someone like that is, is very hard to get through to. Once you reach that stage of ultimate cynicism, uh, I, I do wonder, I must admit, does this person even qualify for how can we fight deconstruction with meaningful stories? Because I'm not sure that at that point, a meaningful story will even reach that person. Uh, They've been fully dissolved by this stuff. So are we talking more about people in the early stages or? Are we talking, Zach, about more more about prevention for for Christian fans?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is more about prevention because I think it works the same way that apologetics does. I think apologetics mostly reinforces the faith of a young believer rather than convinces someone to move into faith. Now, I'm look, I'm not an expert there. Someone may want to correct me on that, but I I generally think that's how it works. The reason why we want to create more meaningful stories that are wrapped around a logos that have a solid foundation is to keep us from wandering away into this world without foundations. Um, Because I think it's much easier to keep someone or to keep yourself in the faith than it is to bring someone back from this multiverse madness. But I I think it does help by recognizing too that, and Wokel, I'm drawing on some thoughts you shared with uh, Benjamin Boyce and Arne McIntyre. I think what a lot of the deconstruction that we're going through leads to Is this inward focus of like, well, I guess it's all just about individualism and just expressing myself, finding my identity through the myriad of ways I can do that, getting rid of, you know, virtues, duty, honor, obligations. And so I I think that the the antidote is just is just the opposite, that we show stories where characters are sacrificing themselves, where they are living up to obligations, where they are pursuing something greater than themselves protecting something beyond their self. And this is not a new idea. I mean, Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. And those are the stories that really resonate with us the most because they are built on something solid. When I listened to you on that other podcast, Michael, um, the story that came to mind is just the story of Nehemiah, that here's a man that says, I am going to put everything I can to rebuilding this wall to protect my people and to kind of rebuild our culture. Uh, and the story of Josiah, who's in a similar way, it's like, I'm going to rebuild the proper worship of God. And so I think stories of rebuilding stories of putting the community first now, and I think you had a really good point about this on that other show is that I think the tendency is to have the hero be this enforcer of discipline you know, like a Caesar figure. And I think that's the mistake that the right can make and the, and the right wing and culture can make is like, oh, we just need a strong man to kind of bring in all this tradition and, and culture back to, you know, level playing field. But I think it, it does come through self-sacrifice more than anything else. It, it comes through that decision to follow something greater. And so these are the stories that I want to see. I, I want to see more of these because these are the ones that last. You know, the, the She-Hulk thing, who's going to be talking about that? I mean, other than just a joke about
0: most folks were hate watching it. Even then, I think
1: who's going to get a tattoo of that, (laughs) you know, people get tattoos of Harry Potter because Harry Potter lived for something greater, right? No one's going to get a tattoo of um, Tyler Durden, I guess, maybe just in an ironic way. We want those greater stories because it draws from something eternal that we are made for like eternity was set in our hearts. So, um, yeah, I, I think those are the the stories that we need because they're the ones that we know we need deep down.
0: I'm hearing as you're saying that Zach, uh, the, uh, the quote from Samwise Gamgee at the end of the two towers film, those were the stories that really matter. Mr. Frodo, yeah. uh, the stories that really matter of what we're talking about here, uh, as opposed to, Stories where nothing matters. The story about nothing, or the story about deconstruction, the story without a foundation or an ultimate virtue uh, that is worth giving up everything to pursue. Uh, even if it's you know, a, a Christianity-derived virtue, like uh, you need your nakama, you need your people, uh, you need your found family, you need your real family. I mentioned earlier uh, this, uh, the, the way that season three of Picard is going very well because even though God and the gospel are nowhere in sight, there are certain things that matters. Self sacrifice for Starfleet and the exploration of the universe and the defense of your crew, those things matter. The story does not step on those, it does not take them casually. And I just sit there and I rejoice. And that may be one other thing that we do uh, in order to fight deconstruction with meaningful stories is uh, not only, you know, go out there, listener, and write this story, you know, that may be too tall of an order. And plus, we don't want everybody to be writers. And where would the readers have been? Uh, where would the readers be? Uh, I would also say that if you find these stories, these meaningful stories, especially from Christian authors, then blow them up on social media. And I don't yes. mean deconstruct, them, I mean tell the world about them. Uh, I couldn't wait to talk even about uh, Picard. Uh, I mean, it could go south in episode five, but I kind of doubt it. <laughs> I went, you know, I took pictures of the end credits, I went onto Twitter and I tagged. Every writer uh, and creator of that show that I could find on social media, uh, including the showrunner, uh, and they seem to be just doing really great work over there. By the way, even while we were recording, y'all, a little my, my little celebrity moment, uh, I got a like from Jonathan Frakes. Yes, Riker himself, uh, who is the uh, nice. director of the episode as well as the star. Uh, he plays uh, he played Commander Riker all, going all the way back to TNG. So I've never been to a Star Trek convention, but that apparently is the closest I'll get uh, and then the showrunner, whose name is Terry Matalis, never heard of this guy, uh, but uh, he's steering the ship in a very good, generally based and, and moral direction. Uh, this seems to be a person who, just based on the art I see, believes in foundations. And I happen to see an article from him at a website called Fatherly, where he is talking about his experience before the lockdowns, or he's talking about how much more important uh, family became to him when his father died and his son was born. Uh, And he's talking about parenthood and he's talking about learning to be a dad and, you know, also do his job as a creator and showrunner of these franchises. Uh, And you see that in the show. You see this emphasis on fatherhood and family and the tensions of your work and your home life, Uh, even applied to the journey of uh, Picard. You know, he's ancient now, but he's still going through these things because, you know, everybody's uh, got some developmental delays, even in the 25th century. (laughs) Uh, so the midlife crisis has been postponed uh, for, uh, for Captain Jean-Luc Picard. And that's okay. I don't mind. You know, Better late than never. And certainly it took us three seasons to get here, but I'm very happy they did. So I'll tell people about these stories, whether they're from non-Christian creators, but especially from Christian creators. When I find an earnest story, I will tell everybody at Lorehaven about it. I've got a little bit of a platform there. I can write reviews. I can go back and get an old book by Frank Peretti and say, this was an earnest story about things that matter a true love story that by the way kind of rebukes the whole idea of the multiverse uh, oddly enough you wouldn't know it from the back cover and then any other story no matter the age group like i'm going to use uh, this little organization to tell as many people i can about meaningful stories
2: i think that postmodernism was a product of people who were trying to burst out of the enlightened liberal framework and the christian moral worldview that came along with a lot of that. I think it was tied to a sensibility that can be traced back to the neo-Marxism of the Frankfurt School. And I think all of that was stirred into a stew that made its way into stories. So we grab a little Marx, you take a little Foucault, add a little dare to bring in some communism, sprinkle in a little bit of power analysis and, ah, yummy. The stew <laughs> of the postmodern world. Okay, And then that gets fed out and it gets brought into everything. What you said about how do you fight it? Well, as much as it was kind of built cynically like that, the idea is Kelly Oliver even said in a journal article she wrote years ago that what we are aiming for is not true theories or false theories. What we are aiming for is strategic theories, Mm. theories with an end and a goal. And as much as a lot of those theories were brought in for that reason, they do need a response. So we can't. Just tell stories, because if we're just telling stories, they're just deconstructing. At some point, you've got to have an answer to their claims about language and their claims about power. I had tweeted something out, and R.J. Palmer, who is a very famous, or I think he's famous, in the Pokemon world for doing illustrations, uh, said, all art is political, everything. And And this is part and parcel of how they view the world. All yeah. art is at the root of it because your art is what? It's a product of your culture and it uses what? The symbols and aesthetics of your culture, which carries in with it the values, the goals, the norms, the standards of your culture and is therefore what? It's, it's pushing a certain worldview and that's politics. That view needs a response. Politics doesn't create everything else. Politics sits on top of the other stuff. And the postmodernist who sees through everything says, "Ah, but you're setting those things up to get your politics that you want." And and the response to that is to say, "If everything's politics, then nothing is." Yeah, that's part of the response is to say that. Another part of the response is to, as C.S. Lewis said, to see, "Once you see through everything, you see nothing." Mm. If everything is everything is transparent, you can't see a thing. I think another answer lies in understanding uh, some of the theories of language. He was an atheist, but an excellent resource is John Searle. He got me to it a little bit too. And maybe some of that was deserved, but his philosophy of language and the way that he pushes back on the postmodern claims about language is excellent. These ideas really do need a response. I think on the artistic front, I think you're right. Part of the thing, and this is, I think, something your audience will resonate with. There's only so many times you can deconstruct the hero until you're left with something that becomes boring. And that I think is the real problem that they're running into. The superhero stories started taking off and they gained a lot of power. Cause I think people re- really were looking for that hero figure, that Christological archetype. And then those movies made so much money and we had our little woke revolution and everything went woke and now it's being deconstructed. And the problem is that the stories are losing all of their weight. Well, it's just a fun ride. Well, when everything's just a fun ride and nothing means anything, it becomes inevitably boring because why should I care? Why does it matter? There's no gravity to it anymore. I mean, the thing that made Infinity War matter was the fact that Iron Man died. That's what, that was the payoff. Everyone's like, well, it's sad. no, it's not sad. It's beautiful because he says, "I'm like, he knows. He's got the stones on his hand. And he knows. He saves the world at the cost of his own life. It mattered. It meant something. That's why it's not boring. There's real consequences and real trade offs. So this stuff is destined to become boring. It's kind of like I can build a house after house after house after house after house. But if all I'm doing is burning houses to the ground, eventually there's nothing left but rubble and I can't burn anything else. Once you've burned everything to the ground, what do you do? You just roll around in the soot. So this stuff, is uh, is there is an attempt through some of these theories and through some of this to uh, erect a new building, the postmodern building of of postmodern morality, where everything is about emancipation? Okay, well, emancipation from what exactly? Well, everything is about sexism and racism and hope. Hobo- okay, once once you deconstruct all of that, now what? Once everyone is exactly equal, now what? There's no good guys, there's no bad guys because mm-hmm. everyone is exactly equal. Right. There's no ascendancy. There's no going up. There's no going down. Everyone just has, you've just mowed the lawn is what you did. You can't have anyone be rewarded for their efforts because that might make somebody better than somebody else. It's destined to become boring. When all you do is deconstruct, it's destined to become boring and flat because there can be no hero's journey because there can be no heroes and there can be no journey because where are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. Because there's nowhere that's good and there's nowhere that's bad. There's just arbitrary choices. And that narrative, the narrative of I can do whatever I want, is only fascinating when you live in a stultifying society that prevents you from doing anything you want. And then the dream of what could I do if I were free holds a lot of power to you. But when the only story you can tell is what would I do if I were free and you're already free, you've got nowhere to aim for. Because you're aiming for what you already have. You're just stuck. You're in neutral. You've got nowhere to go. So I think we need to erect stories that aim at something. You've got to pick something and elevate it. It's got to go up the food chain, it's got to go up the chain, up the ladder, up the pyramid. So, what's the counter story to emancipation from all constraint? There is a difference between freedom and autonomy. Amen. Exactly. I am free to play a guitar because I learned how to play it. It was freedom through discipline that I learned that. I had to sit and practice a lot. That gave me freedom. It increased my capacity to be able to do what I want to do. And I was able to do that because I sat and learned. It's not, freedom is not merely the lack of constraint. It's also capability, capacity, ability, learning, knowledge, Those things are a product of discipline and constraint is a part of discipline. I got up this morning because I didn't stay up all night. I'm sober for this podcast because I didn't do a bunch of drugs before we started. (laughs) We appreciate that. Restraint and constraint are good. So here's an example of an idea of a counter narrative. Picture a futuristic world of futuristic hover cars and the car's race. And the twist is that the race is also combat. That's our simple world. And one kid comes along, and boy, he's got the natural talent, natural ability, right? He's just creative, 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 and does things no one ever sees. Problem is, this Carl always goes off the rails because he's got no brakes. And then you have the old, wise, retired sage come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, yeah, I was years and years and years ago, but I'm, I'm just an old man now. Maybe the kid challenges the old man to a race, and the old man losing is getting beat. But watches the kid go off the rails, wins and says it says yeah i was blah 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 blah." yeah until you went off the rails so you lose and the old man doesn't move and the kid eventually pulls himself into the orbit and chooses to become the apprentice chooses to be the luke skywalker that obi-wan kenobi and learns to to submit himself to the authority of the knowledge of somebody who's got it already who can learn and who can apprentice himself and realize that wait My creativity can't be unbounded. I need to have some boundaries. And then he gets better. And then he learned, oh, real creativity isn't just going outside the boundaries. It's creativity within them. I can't just go off the track all the time. That doesn't work. If my creativity is taking off the track, it needs to be bound. Oh, wait. Creativity within a restrained structure. Oh, that's powerful. Creativity within the system so that I don't go off the track, so that I can finish the race, ooh, that's a powerful thing. And in order to do that, I need to what, humble myself and submit myself underneath the tutelage of a guy who's done it, who's ahead of me, who followed that path down, and I need to have that knowledge transferred down to me so that I can embody it and go out and do that. That's a powerful narrative. And that's a narrative that exists within an archetype which you could avail yourself of, the old wise sage and the young up-and-comer, right? Absolutely. That's so. That's a counter story that you could do. There's a way that I'm just—I just made that up. I have no idea if that story might already have been done. I'm just making something up off the
0: top of my head. But someone could write a story like that. It's almost like Cars from from Pixar. And uh, what you're talking about, Michael, and we'll draw to a close uh, in just a second here. But what you're talking about is discipleship. And I think if we were yeah. to offer one single idea. Uh, that is a meaningful story uh, to fight deconstruction. I mean, you cannot deconstruct, deconstruction. Well, you can by showing that it's absurd, but a lot of them already know it's absurd. That's part of the fun of it. Everything's absurd. Nothing has meaning. Don't play according to those rules. What you do instead is say, no, we need construction. Uh, we don't need these uh, machines that uh, blow everything into smoke. Uh, one of my favorite, actually, constructive metaphors Uh, from Zack Snyder's Justice League, a genuinely constructive superhero movie, by the way, is this guiding idea throughout the movie of these, uh, these alien technologies that are destructive, but it turns out that these machines are actually change machines. You can use them to terraform a world, or you can use them, as one genuine hero says, to turn smoke back into a house. And so the heroes end up saving the day. Because they understand this principle that they can actually use this object to do something good. They can actually reverse a death. They can reverse a deconstruction and actually build something. We need more stories like that, but it starts with discipleship. and So it starts then not even just with better stories or talking about them or making them, but it starts, faithful listener, with the local church. It starts with the logos, first of all, Christ, the chief cornerstone upon whom are built all of the law and prophets. It starts with his life, death, and resurrection, his founding of the church on the foundation, which is himself, which cannot be shaken. Uh, It starts with understanding how Christ's unshakability, Christ's impassibility, God is impassable. His nature does not change. He does not learn. He does not grow. He does not throw out something and then start all over again. Like even back in Genesis with the flood, he wasn't doing that. No. Our great God continues to build. He is a builder. He's made us to build. Start there in Genesis, then go to John 1. Understand discipleship in the local church and join a local church, a good one if you can find it. Uh, Not all local churches are going to stab you in the back or pull the foundation out from under you. There are good ones out there. All it takes is you plugging into one that actually does offer that sense of stability. Uh, And then as well, faithful listener, yeah. Find great stories that help you also imagine, even if you can't yet feel, start training yourself to imagine things constructively. Yes, clear out the bad ideas, the false doctrines, get some help for the healing that you need that we talked about in our last episode, uh, and continue to rebuild. Believe in Jesus, of course, and understand, yes, there are unshakable truths out there. You don't have to throw it all out with cynicism deconstruct everything don't follow after the people who are trying to i would say lie to you and maybe even earn a nice living or gain power over you by saying that it's all about power and you may as well just get used to the game no don't play that game don't play that game and follow folks like uh michael on at Vocal distance on twitter that is your handle there uh, we'll mm-hmm. have that link in the show notes. Uh, you break this stuff down in, in Twitter threads, Michael, and I would refer folks to, uh, to what you're doing there. It gets a little academic, but uh, you do try to make that accessible, and we appreciate that. I just want to thank you for stopping by and sharing your knowledge with us, uh, and we, we look forward to seeing uh, where you go with your career, thinking constructively. Appreciate that, brother.
2: Thank you for having me, and I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and
0: chat. Thanks for joining us. From there, let's go to our um, Lorehaven mission update. I mentioned this at the top of the show. Now it's time to close the loop on that and not pull that foundation out from under you. We're not going to subvert expectations. We're going to fulfill them. Uh, Lorehaven is joining up with Enclave and Fayette Press uh, for the Austin Homeschool Conference. It's the Teach Them Diligently Conference in Round Rock, Texas in late March. We're going to have that news post up at lorehaven.com. You can find that link in our show notes and learn more information. I'll be there. I'm teaching a workshop. Uh, Jamie Foley with Enclave and Fayette. She will be there as well. And uh, so will be Candice Cade, uh, the author who was mentioned in the top sponsor slot for this show, uh, the author of Enhanced. She's going to be there signing copies. The book will just release. Uh, going to be a great big little release party there that uh, we we'll get to meet homeschool families. Uh, Zach may even be there with his microphone to interview some folks for a future episode. So come out and join us. Get those links in the show notes. We even have a coupon code and everything. Uh, Also at lorehaven.com, we just reviewed uh, Frank Peretti's apparently final novel, so sad, uh, Illusion. I got to write a featured retro review myself about that. And then we have upcoming reviews for books with titles like Exile and a middle grade fantasy called Please Return to the Lands of Luxury. Those should both be fun ones for different audiences. You can get free updates at lorehaven.com. Just go there and subscribe, uh, jot your email address in there, and tell us what you want to hear about. And then you can also get an exclusive invitation for the Lorehaven Guild. That's our Discord community where we do monthly book quests, a secure community shaped by a biblical faith statement and a code of honor that we require of every member. You can join only by subscribing at lorehaven.com and get safe passage to the Lorehaven Guild. Uh, We have some calm station stuff I won't have time to get to right now. Uh, Some folks had some really great thoughts about our last episode, uh, 152, uh, about church trauma. uh, Foundational to this episode, if you haven't heard it, How Can Christian Fantasy Fans Heal From Church Trauma? Great roundtable discussion there. Maybe we'll have time for those comments uh, at the end of our next episode. Next on Fantastical Truth. What if you had to pretend that you were genetically altered, but you were not, to survive in a futuristic East Asian world ruled by a social credit system? We are breaking from this series about present day fantastical foes and instead jumping into the sci fi cyberpunk world of Enhanced, Candace Cade's debut novel that released today. She will join us for an interview in our next episode of Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, we've kind of already done the application here, but. Please, 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 gentle, faithful listener, do not fall for the tropes and the power games of this deconstructionism movement. Yes, you may need to clear out some bad paneling uh, in the structures that people have built atop the foundation of Christ and his church. No, you may not and should not. For Christ's sake, literally, attack the very foundation itself there is a difference you must instead think constructively you were made to build things to steward the earth you were made to build on that foundation get into the word of god join a good local church that won't hurt you and understand that there are some truths and beauties that cannot be shaken as we continue to seek and find christ's fantastical truth